Welcome to episode 534 with my guest, Ethan Warren. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around our heads. I am not a therapist. Uh, this is not a doctor's office. We are, we are not the solution. We're the, we're the company in the waiting room of the doctor's office. And, uh, I wouldn't say take everything I say with a grain of salt. I would say take it with a, an overflowing cup of salt and just a little pepper just to balance out the taste. Really, is this how I'm starting the podcast? I'm plowing ahead. I'm plowing ahead. I got a an appointment for a COVID vaccine. I'm uh, very happy about that, although I wasn't as worried about getting it uh, now that I've got it, but my sense of smell still has uh, not completely returned, uh, but there's a little bit of it, so I'm happy about that. Uh, something I wanted to talk about, I was in one of my support group meetings, obviously online uh, recently, and one of the topics that comes up in this support group, because intimacy issues uh, and trust and vulnerability and perfectionism are, uh, and fear of intimacy are the issues that come up over and over again for uh, those of us in the support group. And one of the characteristics that uh, comes up is how we confuse love with neediness and physical and sexual attraction and also confuse it with pity and the the need to rescue or be rescued. And for the longest time, I had always just assumed that neediness would be disguised as love because I had experienced that in the past. But it occurred to me that I sometimes also mistake love for neediness. In other words, when somebody is presenting me with a healthy form of love, whether it's platonic or romantic, I have struggled because I fear that person's neediness. And, you know, I'm sure it goes back to childhood and, you know, my mom using me for her emotional needs instead of my dad. And, and just immediately shutting down, going into isolation mode, numbing myself out with addictions and and just having this fear of being drained and and overwhelmed and that's that's not really the case today um i'm i'm really happy to say that the work that i've done in support groups has has helped with that but i wanted to share that because i know that there are a lot of people out there who struggle with letting people in even though they're lonely and they want to make a human connection, it's like there's this radar inside of us that goes off. Uh, and sometimes it's correct in telling us this person is unhealthy. You need to, to back away. But sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's fucked up. And that person really is safe and really does have boundaries. But we shut down. And... Uh, I think people who were raised in traumatic environments or didn't have their need needs met, and especially people who were drained by a, a caregiver, um, we are often bored by somebody who is presenting stability 
and healthy love and boundaries. And for some reason, we are attracted to people who are kind of half there, don't really give us their full attention, are wishy-washy. Oh, the brain. Oh, the brain. Uh, If you guys have not looked into supporting the podcast uh, through Patreon, uh, and that's something seems doable to you, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, our Patreon contributions have uh, have taken a hit in this last year, and uh, we really need some help. So go to patreon.com slash mentalpod, and uh, you can also donate through other ways. You can do one-time donations uh, via PayPal or Zelle, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really appreciated. This is a question I got. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Holly Jean. And she writes, do you think being in an incubator for a week when you're born can contribute to depression in an adult? Well, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but I was pre-med and I am a hypochondriac. So I'm going to answer this one. I would think so because I know that infants, you know, are, are very... The, the brain is at a really important stage and physical um, connection to a caregiver and emotional connection, attachment uh, is hugely important. So I would imagine that that, that can, uh, obviously on an unconscious level, I don't think the, you know, the person's going to grow up and go, oh, that week when I was two weeks old, oh. Can't get it out of my head. The pooping, the loneliness. I also think that if you spend a week in an incubator as an adult, it can make you a baby. I hope that answers your question. This is from the love survey filled out by Nothing But Nerves. And uh, one of their loves is the feeling of being hit with the sudden knowledge that someone truly wants you around. I love that. And it's such a simple one. But it's it's probably at the heart of what drives our behavior. Because we want to control the manner in in which we're we're loved and when we're loved and who loves us and the lengths we will go to to get love when we're hurting. And not that, you know, trying to get love is a bad thing, but I don't know. Now I'm mumbling. Uh, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. Chai Guy, hello, fellow Chicagoan, asks, uh, did you grow up in an integrated neighborhood or go to an integrated high school? Were you exposed to people of different races and ethnicities in suburban Chicago in the 70s? And the the answer to that is uh, no. No, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And uh, especially on the south side of Chicago, I'm from the, as he mentioned, the south suburbs. Um, But there are areas uh, south of the city where if you cross a street, uh, the racial makeup of the neighborhood changes drastically. And uh, and there are people feel unsafe and a lot of racism, really, really intense racism. Um, we did have some, uh, some kids, uh, some kids who were black in my high school growing up, but it was maybe a dozen and they kind of kept to themselves 
And I think maybe once or twice there was um, a fight that seemed to be around uh, a racial issue. But uh, for the most part, no, it was not integrated. And it was actually a, a bit of a stereotype, the the suburb that I grew up when, in. Uh, it, it was the first all-white suburb. Um, well, I should say one of the first all-white suburbs uh, south of the city of uh, Chicago. Um, let, let me explain that. There were other all-white enclaves south of the city, but then south of them would be black communities. Ours was the first where it was all white from then on. And it was so delineated that it was literally on the other side of the train tracks, uh, which we rarely ventured over unless, you know, we were 16 and 17 and trying to, to buy liquor, um, because it was easier to, uh, to buy it there. But I, uh, I have a tough time going back to that neighborhood because the racism is still overt, but the neighborhood is actually now really, really integrated. I don't know if it's happily integrated, but I hope that answers your question. I feel like I'm stumbling and bumbling. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Expert Overthinker, and about his compulsive thinking. He writes, I inherited it from my insanely risk-averse father. It feels like most of my path in life wasn't chosen based on what I want, but rather it's a random path dictated by trying to avoid the landmines that surround me, problems, errors, or anything with a less than guaranteed perfect outcome. Making choices is paralyzing. I think a lot of people really, really relate to that. And Living life, being focused on the negative and being protected and avoiding mistakes is such a draining way to live. And I very much relate to that. And one of the things that I try to do when I catch myself being in that mind frame is I try to trust the universe. Not that I'm not going to feel pain or disappointment, but that there are surprises that await me that I will enjoy. There are, you know, it sounds cheesy, but there are presents to open that I will experience in my future. And I try to, because I've had so many of them in the past, why wouldn't I have them in the future? And that that helps me be a little a little less fearful. We are sponsored today, as always, by the online therapy provider, betterhelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P. If you've never tried online therapy, what in the hell are you waiting for? It's nice doing therapy from the comfort of your your home. You can do it via video or uh, phone or uh, live chat. They might still have smoke signal, but they might have cut that out. I know the Pony Express was discontinued. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to take this joke and I'm going to beat it into the ground. Cave art, I know they are no longer doing cave art. It was such a slow process, healing through cave art. If you are interested in trying it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they 
have a counselor they feel is a good fit for you. They'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's your thing. And you need to be over 18. And then finally, this is a little snippet from a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by CW. And she writes about her misophonia, which is uh, a sound sensitivity. I would rather get shit on by a bird than hear someone's nose whistle. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with uh, Ethan Warren, who uh, I'm assuming is a listener because that's uh, you got a hold of me. I am, yeah. 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 Um, He's a filmmaker, and you had a psychotic bipolar episode while putting a movie together, and um, you were admitted to a psych ward. Correct, yeah. Um, Where do we begin? I know. Um, You're how old? I am 31. I have passed that point, I think, where uh, you kind of keep the closest track your age. I've been telling people I'm 32 and having to think like, uh, I don't think that sounds right. Isn't that weird when you get to that age where yeah. you have to think about it? <laughs> it's it's very freeing, though, because it's, you know, yeah. I'm, just, I'm floating in the ether, on, you know. Well, you're also in that gap between uh, your age doesn't matter either direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice, enjoy those six years. So in terms of where we start, I mean, like, it's it's so crazy to be in here because, like, the making of this movie was so tied up in this sort of, the term I use is nervous breakdown. My psychiatrist hates it when I say that because it's not a clinical term. Um, Scoot up just a tiny bit. Yeah. So when I was 25, about to turn 25, I started writing this movie and putting it together and I had this this breakdown and now... Here I am with the movie coming out next week, and I'm finally sort of summing it all up and wrapping it up. So it's it's very sort of eerie and, and feels very significant to tell this story in this moment. So I'll try not yeah. to milk the drama too much. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess should probably start around when I graduated college, mm-hmm. if that works for you. Yeah, yeah, you're from the East Coast. Just yeah. g- give me a really broad overview of what childhood and kind of the emotional temperature of your house was like growing up. Yeah, uh, so I grew up uh, just outside Boston. My parents actually were uh, teachers at a prep school out okay. there and ran a dorm. So my sister and I grew up in the, the faculty apartment of a dorm of uh, 40 teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my growing up experience um and was that a positive one for you that that experience or was it it was alienating it was all i ever knew you know Mm -hmm. sort of you you accept the reality that you have and and so it was mostly neutral 
Um, I think when I hit about 14 and the sort of girl-boy dynamics got a little weirder, um, it was maybe a little alienating for a couple of years, but then, you know, it's, it's just, I had trouble ever envisioning how people don't live in a setup like that. Like when <laughs> I started dating my wife, uh, she was so amused that like, I didn't get how mailboxes worked. I didn't get how trash day worked because <laughs> we threw our trash in the dumpster and, and the mail came to the faculty room. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I have just sort of really wonderful, warm, supportive parents uh, in the most sort of dull, boring, wonderful way possible. <laughs> um, one sister. And I think I, I grew up um, with sort of flares emotionally. Um, the one thing I've never forgotten is uh, one night when I was, I think, 17, I got really emotional and uh, in an act very unlike me, I, I punched the wall. And uh, the the casing for the light switch uh, shattered. And my mom, uh, I think with this <laughs> uh, sort of foresight, said, uh, we're not getting that fixed. And uh, you have to just look at that. Because this was in like the family room in the basement. It was every time you go in there to hang out with your friends or watch TV, you just look at that and remember that like you lost control and you broke something. And that always really hung with me. Um did she, did she ask what you were upset about or did she know what you were upset about? I think it would have been clear at that time. Um, you but know, you don't recall what it was? Oh, no, I do. Um, okay. I was leaving for a semester uh, in a, at a uh, sort of a semester program, uh, you know, the equivalent of semester abroad, but for high school. And I was uh, sort of very torn up by leaving my friends and, and the very sort of teenage melodramas of like, oh, my life is in turmoil, at least relative to a privileged 16-year-old. <laughs> Uh, was it your decision to go? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, um, I was always somebody who was very sort of, I think closed off to, um, putting myself out there and I was a scared kid, very, very scared kid. And so this was a real sort of a whim. I said, I'm going to apply to this program. I'm going to go and do something so far outside my comfort zone. And then I got in and I committed and then, you know, the, the fear took the over fear and the, oh, and, shit. That, and that's where the anger was coming from. Yeah. I think, um, fear that my life was going to go on without me. Um, you know, my family and my friends would forget sort of, about you. Yeah. That, that when I came back, I wouldn't sort of slot back into the same, you'd miss all the great moments. Yes, exactly. And I think it was an experience that was important because I learned that my family and friends lives did go on without me <laughs> and my life went on without them somewhere else. And then you sort of, get home and, and you don't quite pick up right where you left off. You pick up somewhere a little bit new and that's good and that's bad, but it's a lesson that's worth learning when you're 16, 17, if you can. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And then uh, I went to college in Maine. And looking back at that yeah. moment, do you, do you think that that was part of your uh, illness rearing its head? Was it? It's, it's hard to say cause I don't, uh, I can't think of any other real emotional outbursts okay. along those lines. Um, but I was always very interested in psychology and, and drawn to these stories of, of artists who, uh, you know, wrestled with mental illness. I think so many of us who are interested in, in the creative arts are drawn to that, um, especially when, when we're young. And there's, uh, there's a Patton Oswalt bit uh, from his first album, I think, where he talks about how we all have a moment of irony in mm -hmm. our lives. Do you know this bit? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, his his example is, you know, you'll see a movie about Paul McCartney and young Paul McCartney's walking down the street and he sees the guitar 
in the store window and thinks to himself, I'd love to have that guitar. And the audience goes, oh, and he did get that guitar. And he, you know, Patton's point is that we all have a moment like that somewhere. And what I think of as mine was learning about bipolar disorder. It would have been probably called manic depression at that time when I was young. And having them, whoever was telling me about this said, um, and some people will choose to go on and off their meds. And my moment of irony was thinking like, well, that's a real goofy thing to do. Why would anyone ever do that? <laughs> and, you know, the audience of my biopic goes, ah, oh, it's not that simple. simple. And someday, you know, this kid's going to have to wrestle with this whole situation. So, but yeah, I mean, I wish I had more sort of exciting stories. of <laughs> emotional No, turmoil no, and, no. Uh, yeah. Actually, stories like yours are really important because people often feel uh, like they shouldn't feel the way they feel if they don't have something traumatic or right. dramatic yeah. to point to. And it, it's why I want to share as many stories as possible from a variety of experiences, because the most important thing is um, giving weight to what we're feeling in the hopes that we can find a good way to manage it, deal with it, make peace with it, uh, whatever uh, surrender to it, whatever, whatever it is. But yeah. if we just minimize it, that, that is a hurdle that keeps any, uh, really significant forward progress really hard to make. So, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, and I, and I think it's also something that kept me from recognizing my own, uh, feelings when things did start getting bad is this sense of like, um, you know, nothing bad has ever happened to me. And, you know, what I'm feeling right now is just, you know, everybody has their blues and their excited moments. And, you know, I'm not the kind of person who gets sick. I'm not the kind of person who does this. And, and if I had known better, I think, how to recognize and honor that, it might have been better off. And then when I got to the hospital, as we'll get around to talking about at some point, it kept me, I think, from fully engaging with getting better for a while was this, yeah. this denial of I'm the not fight. that kind of person. Yeah. It's yeah. many, it, in many ways, it seems like the, uh, you know, the, the five stages of, uh, um, what, what, uh, Kubler-Ross. Yeah. The, the Elena yeah. Kubler-Ross, uh, and, and I, I suppose surrendering to the idea of ourselves, um, dying, yeah, uh, not the idea of us being dead, but the idea that we had that we would never be the type of person that has mental illness or yeah. would need medication to survive. That image, I think, in a way, we're mourning the loss. Sure. Yeah. And and also just when you are fighting with the idea that you need a diagnosis, I mean, God, like denial, bargaining, anger, acceptance, forgot one in there. Depression, I guess. Um, I think I went Folly? Through. Folly's not in there? That's not... I don't think that's one of the five. Maybe that's like five plus. How about ebullience, which I don't even know what that means. <laughs> ebullience was my problem. Yes. I was just nothing but ebullient for yeah. a week. You're from the East Coast. What is ebullient? Uh, I think of... Just, I, <laughs> the image that jumps to mind is somebody just like bounding down the street. Okay. Like just I, bursting into song. I had a feeling. I had a feeling it was something like yeah. that. Um. Or somebody who eats a lot of bullion. Yes. You ever eaten just it just by the by cube? The cube? No, oh, that sounds terrible. There's just no other way to go. Oh, really? But you, I got to tell you, you get really thirsty. Yeah, I would think really you just make the soup in your mouth. Yeah. Um, so there was the the battle inside uh, of you of not wanting to be the kind of person um, that would need meds or yeah. Well, and and so. 
so I went to college uh, up in Maine, uh, Bates College, and um, then I graduated and had the sort of very classic, uh, shit, now what feeling. And uh, What I was your degree in? My degree was a uh, double major in English and psychology. Okay. Uh, but really my degree was in like hanging out with my friends <laughs> and that's actually really sort of part of what leads into everything is, um, I was president of, of one of the acapella groups up at Bates and another moment of irony, they were called the manic optimists. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that was my group was the man ops. And, um, you know, it's, they were my best friends there. They're still my best friends now, 10 years later. And, and once or you no. Know, two or three times a week, I guess we would get together and just create something for the love of it. And, you know, it never extended beyond our college, but we were rock stars there and we were rock stars in our own minds. And that was what I majored in, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways was, um, was collaborating and creating. And, and that is what I think of in, in so many ways as what I most took away and what I most then was missing when I graduated and I, I moved to Boston, um, and, uh, my girlfriend was still in college. Um, she's my wife now. She was two years behind me. So for three years, I sat in an apartment uh, writing because I knew that telling stories is what I liked best. Um, I did some copywriting on the side uh, and I just decided I was going to focus on prose writing because that was what allowed me to withdraw within myself mm -hmm. most. Uh, I would never have to step outside myself if I could just sit on the couch <laughs> And just write a few novels here and there. Uh, and I would go back on the weekends and, and see those guys again and, and get to feel like the sense of collaboration and, and putting something together. Uh, and that lasted for three years. And then uh, everything fell apart. I don't want to move too fast into that, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Uh, no, I feel like we got a pretty good, yeah. pretty good picture. Um, so you found your passion. Yeah. Um, when did things start to go off the uh, the rails? So I had this passion for storytelling, but um, I found there was really something sort of missing from uh, my life of just being, you know, by myself and, and solitude. And film was always the art form that uh, I reacted most passionately to as a viewer. And who, I had who who are your uh, heroes guys? influences. Particular um, movies. Yeah. That... <laughs> How many hours do we have? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Terrence Malick is somebody I really love. Um, Days amazing. of Heaven is, is a movie that had a huge impact on me. Um, Badlands is incredible. Badlands is incredible. Um, and he had a, a huge impact on the movie that I went on to make, so that's why my mind jumps to that. Um, Kubrick, you know. I think, Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian filmmaker. Those are sort of my like high and mighty guys. I am um, going to pretend I know who he is. Yeah. Oh my God, he's fantastic. <laughs> he made the four-hour Russian movie Solaris, which is uh, then adapted into a bad George Clooney version. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's was that a movie about a potato on a bare table? How did you you said you hadn't seen it? <laughs> I'm I'm actually referencing a satire short film I remember from about 15 years ago that was brilliant. They were making it was it was a trailer or amongst the trailers and it was kind of a send up of the typical uh very dark brooding European Eastern European uh thing and it was nice. just kind of a haggard 
Slavic guy sitting at a table with a lone potato crying or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you're not that far off. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, Rob Reiner's Stand By Me had a huge impact on me. The run he had in the, the 80s where it was just like Unreal. year after year, Spinal Tap, spinal Princess tap. Bride, Stand I think, By Me. I think uh, Spinal Tap is probably the most influential uh, comedy of the last 30 or 40 years. It has to be, right? Like, nobody had ever done what they did, and now yeah. we're still living in the aftermath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Albert Brooks took a little shot at it. Um, right, yeah. With, uh, what was it, uh, Modern Life? Modern Romance, is it? Uh, or, or was it Real Life? Real, Real yeah, Life. The, the parody of the uh, yes. American Family series, right? Right, yeah. right, right. Um, but go ahead. So, oh, so film was the, the medium that I really responded to and, and what I wanted to interact with. And uh, in college, I had done a four-week film course, uh, a production crash course, and what I had found was uh, that it was too much pressure. Uh, I remember the day I directed my first or second short film, uh, I thought I was going to die of a heart attack, very literally. <laughs> I woke up at five and went to get Dunkin' Donuts for the cast and crew, and I stood in the Dunkin' Donuts having what I now can identify was a panic attack. And I thought, well, I'm going to die in this Dunkin' Donuts, and that's a hell of a way to go. <laughs> Were there any uh, specific thoughts around the panic attack, or was it just general? Uh, I think it was just the idea that um, I wouldn't be able to make decisions fast enough. You know, when you're uh, on a film set as a director, uh, there's a lot of decisions coming at you fast. That's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> and you make one little wrong decision early in the day, and then the whole day is shot. And and so more than even making the wrong decisions, it was the pressure of having to make the decisions. That and and please people. Yes. And to not get yelled at. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's nothing worse in life than... Yeah, that's, a, that's a Paul F. Tompkins thing, is, is how as an adult you can still be terrified of getting yelled at as though it's the worst thing in the world short of death. So... Uh, somebody submitted a survey uh, a couple of weeks ago that said, uh, whenever somebody says, we need to talk, I immediately feel like a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. Especially when it's my mom just texts me and says, can you talk? And I just call them, oh, what yeah. the hell, what oh, is yeah. wrong? It's like, oh, I just want to say hi. Stomach drops. Yep. Sorry. Um, so go ahead, keep going. So I did this film course, but I was so ruled by panic that even though, uh, you know, my, my final project I made was, I think, really great and uh, had an impact on the audiences that saw it, I walked away and said, this isn't for me. I can't live this life of, you know, thinking I'm going to die in Dunkin' Donuts every day. <laughs> And so I went home and I, and I wrote the prose and it wasn't really clicking. And I hit this point of after three years, there was a feeling of like, what am I going to do now? My girlfriend, uh, now my wife, uh, was having a similar thing. She was also didn't know what she was going to do with her life and was dissatisfied with what she was doing. And we just both started panicking and, uh, there was a moment where we were like, well, let's go to Thailand. We'll drop everything, go to Thailand and become teachers. Naturally. Naturally. And uh, and then she... I've always enjoyed a sarong. Right. And she decided not Thailand, but India. She got a job in India instead uh, that she ultimately didn't end up taking. But I think that was really where the bottom fell out for me, was the idea that, well, she was going to be gone in India for a year, and what the hell was I going to do? And a friend of mine, a former manic optimist uh, named Ryan, Ryan Polly uh, of the band formerly Los Angeles Police Department, just rebranded as Ryan Polly. Um, it was one of my best friends. Uh, we were on the phone and he said, you don't want to go to Thailand. You don't want to do anything else. What 
you have spent all this time denying is that you want to make movies. And I said, I can't. And he said, well, just write a screenplay um, just to see what happens. And I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got out my computer. I downloaded Final Draft. Uh, and I booted it up, and I started writing. By the way, that's enough for a mental breakdown. Downloading Final Downloading Draft. Final Draft. You know, it was. But <laughs> go ahead. So I basically then started writing and didn't stop. Um, I, I slept a couple hours a night. Uh, I ate enough to survive barely. And I wrote a screenplay in about two or three days. What were you telling yourself uh as you observed, I'm only sleeping a couple of hours. I'm not eating. Um, I need uh, to push through it yeah. or I don't feel like it. No, I was very uh, able to justify things because I was saying, well, these last few years, I've clearly been in a depression. And so what I'm doing now is getting healthy. And this is what health looks like. Maybe I'm just somebody who doesn't need to sleep that much. Some people can get by on a couple hours a night, right? I did my sleeping. Right. And last year. You know, I'm overweight. I need to lose a few pounds. And so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm sure just having a couple of bites is all I really need anyway. And what matters is this is so exciting. Yeah. And something is changing. Describe that the feeling. Remember where we are so that you can come back. Describe the feeling to somebody who's never experienced that feeling. What it feels like in your body. The thoughts that are going through your head, your emotions, how you connect to other people or don't connect to other people. So this was the very beginning. Uh, so the first few days was uh, thrilling. And it's uh, safe to say this was mania? This We're, was mania, absolutely, okay. yeah. Okay. Um and bi bipolar one mania. Yes. Which yeah. is, uh, you know. And presumably there was a psychosis involved at this point, um, but it would get much worse over the course of the week. And so I think of this as almost the honeymoon phase of the it's... manic episode where I was uh, making connections very quickly. That was, that was thrilling. I mean, I basically didn't have an outline when I started this script. I had a premise. And... Uh, so this feeling that I had of I was walking on a tightrope that was just appearing in front of me, or like I had the tightrope in my hand, and I just kept throwing it and running. And it's a euphoria. It's this feeling that you are accessing this whole new part of myself, that like my chest was opening up, and who I was finally meant to be was sort of exploding into the world. And so joy I think is, is just so, yeah. Um, omnipotence. Yeah. Uh, not omnipotence, but, um, I would come around to the Messiah complex okay. soon enough. Ebullience. Ebullience. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so I wrote this screenplay and then I said, well, let's write another. <laughs> and I had this story lying around that I had written. It was a novella and I thought, well, uh, maybe I adapt this to a screenplay. And had anybody said anything to you? Like you seem different or yeah. you seem like you're talking a lot and yeah. uh, you seem really kind of intense. Mm -hmm. These first couple of days, uh, yeah, certainly my um, parents and, and my girlfriend, Caitlin, uh, were starting to notice, uh, but I was not seeing them all that much. Uh, my parents were in town and Caitlin was okay. still living with her parents. And so I think it was easy to just sort of not miss it, but to think, oh, let's just keep an eye on this. And, and my mom, I remember saying, be careful. And I just said like, oh, I'm always careful. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. 
And it was then uh, when the next couple of days happened. Um, the second story. The second, uh, the second story. screenplay. Yeah. yeah. So this was a novella that I had lying around um, that this is this is the movie that would end up becoming West of Her, uh, which is a movie that's coming out on, on demand in a week. Uh, spoiler alert, it all works out <laughs> in some way or another. Um, and so that, that script came even faster because I was just converting a, a prose document into screenplay it form. Was, was it somebody else's novella or yours? It was mine. Okay. Yeah. And it was the project that now I look back on as, as really meaning something to me and channeling a lot of the sort of loss and confusion. Not loss, but channeling a lot of the confusion and depression and, mm -hmm. and searching for my place in the world that I was feeling up to that point. And as I wrote, I started to realize um, I could make this movie. I, I had the resources and the skills and, and um, it was a small scale thing. And at first it was just me thinking, well, someone could make this. It wouldn't be that hard. Uh, it's, it's a road movie and it's two characters in a car and there's no requirements for crowd scenes. It's mostly exteriors. And in over the course of a couple of days, God, over the course of a couple hours, <laughs> that went from someone could make this to I could make this to I'm going to make this. And then I, the, the lying to myself really kicked into high gear. Um, well, you know, what you've described so far, um, not to minimize it, but to the outside observer, doesn't sound like it's off. You know, you start writing right. it, you're like, you know, you know, maybe I'm just afraid to try to make it myself. But go ahead. Continue. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the, uh, the intensity and energy were what it would have been the warning sign gotcha. at that time. Gotcha. Uh, so then I started to... Um, make little steps and say to myself, well, I'm just seeing what happens. I'm just going to see what happens if I press this button. And so I realized I could make this movie. Uh, I could pick up and move to LA. And what if I did that? So I went on Craigslist and I posted something. Just because you wanted to have a three-way before you moved to LA? <laughs> Blow out your mic. Uh, no. Okay. Did not. I, I, skipped, I misunderstood. Skipped right by the, whatever it's called, adult encounters section. And went straight for the, uh, I went to the LA section and I posted a casting notice and wrote something that was really like pretty close to a manifesto. Grandiose. Yeah. Grandiosity. Um, you know, you know, Jerry Maguire, when mm -hmm. he writes his manifesto that he's just pouring his heart into like, you know, the, our industry is sick, but like we have this purity inside us that we can make a change. And that was what I wrote. And I was posting this Craigslist ad about like. I'm looking for people who have, I'm looking for young actors who have never gotten the success that they need to band together with me and do something truly special and revolutionary and change the film industry and possibly change humanity. Oh my God. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get like a response or two in a couple of months. So the FBI knocks on your door. <laughs> no, we probably would have gotten to uh, some resolution a little faster if that yeah. happened. Uh, but what happened instead was the emails just came pouring in. And it was a flood. And, and were these people ignoring the last two sentences? It was people who connected with it. Okay. Um, it was a lot of... There was a combination of people. There were people who had very little experience but knew that they had it in them to be stars if, uh, if they just found the right moment. There were mentally and emotionally unstable people. Uh, there was one guy who I still remember his email so vividly where he says, you know... I've been sleeping under a bridge mostly, um, 
but like I've got this talent in me, I've got this passion in me, and and when I see your ad, you give me hope. Uh, and then there were the uh, young professionals with headshots and resumes and reels who were just sort of sending out for everything. <laughs> and so the first two categories of, of people really fueled the grandiosity was the sense of like, you know, if you've really got this crazy vision, then, mm-hmm. you know, I want in. And then I, you know, I got this sort of messiah complex of, oh, well, you know, maybe what I'm really doing is starting a movement. And were you already envisioning your awards acceptance speech? Uh, no, because what I was envisioning was more being the guy who was like, oh, awards, like, fuck that. I'm too, you know, I'm, I'm a real artist me. too. Yeah, yeah, no. I don't act for trophies. Exactly. Um, no, I was, I was envisioning uh, really, you know, God, changing the world. Like the grandiosity is crazy, but I, I not to use that, uh, you know, word that I, I don't really love, crazy, but... I think we can use it amongst ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> when somebody labels somebody else with a lack of compassion, yeah. th- that's when I kind of uh, take I, I absolutely take do too, and, and it feels a little ableist, yeah. um, but it still slips out with me, especially yeah. when I'm talking about myself. Um, so, God, it, it, it all happens so fast, and I don't remember so much of it. Um, because also around this time, I'm trying to tell my family... And my girlfriend, I think I'm going to do this. And they're saying, slow down. You hadn't moved yet? No. Okay. Uh, This all happens within a week. This is just a few days after I wrote that first screenplay. I'm telling them I'm picking up and moving. And they're saying, slow down. Think this through. And I'm saying, no, you don't understand. Something has begun here. And I'm fine. You can't see that. Boy, this is all just the mantra of mania it's unbelievable how many people this is yeah this is the if you look at the diagnostic criteria like that week it it hits them i think seven for seven and so fortunately later on diagnosis would become pretty easy once i was able to accept that i needed it uh what what are the seven if you can remember them oh i can't off the top of my head but grandiosity um accelerated thoughts um not needing to eat or sleep uh is irritability one irritability is definitely one uh, and as as i became I, I had a really short fuse um particularly for for my girlfriend uh this sense that you're just slowing me down you don't understand and if i just start talking again if you just sit down and listen to me and really focus on what i'm saying then you'll understand and then, you know, I'm just, it's a word salad and I'm crying and saying, why don't you understand what I'm oh, saying? It's oh so God. simple. Oh my God. Yeah. What a, what a burden for her too. Yeah, it was. But she's a, she's a very, very strong woman. Um, so I, boy, just as you keep moving along and streamlining, uh, I started a relationship with a couple of actors, um, I Work, working relationship, working relationship. Okay. I, I engaged them, uh, in this dream I was having and basically, uh, boy, you know, hour by hour, uh, I'm starting to, uh, form a collective is where I land. Like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll all rent a house and we'll make art together and, and we'll this time I'll write and direct the movie and then you'll write and direct the movie and we'll all, you know, but at the time I didn't know the term collective. And so I thought I was inventing something. And then that's where the idea that I'm going to revolutionize Hollywood and I'm going to change the way the game is done uh, is coming along. And uh, I talked to one actor who tells me, 
what you're describing is really common. And I'm like, oh, well, he just doesn't understand. Clearly, he thinks he understands me, so I haven't been clear enough <laughs> to convey that we're talking about... My idea. My idea. And there's a kernel of, I think, something true in what I was feeling, which is that I think art can change people's perspectives. Um, and it can expose people to new um, perspectives and experiences and, and generate empathy for them, uh, which for me turned into, so my art will end racism and homophobia. I was saying that. Boy, it was going to be a long movie, huh? It really was. No, it was just going to be so good. 90 minutes, people are going to watch this thing and racism's <laughs> done in, you know, a week. And, you know, then at this point, the, the, the crying a lot, the screaming a lot, the threatening to cut people out of my life. And, and was it, did it go from euphoria to irritability or was it wavering back and forth between euphoria and irritability and sadness or frustration? Very rapid cycling, certainly. Okay. Um, but it's, it's getting more and more towards intensity and irritability. The joy is more privately when I'm in my car driving to, to go see my mom to lay this all out for her because she just happens to be coming into town today. Let's just get lunch, you and me. And I'm driving over and I'm, I'm seeing, I swear to God, like the, the leaves on the trees were glowing and vibrating to me. And I was thinking, oh, wow, like my uh, abilities of, of perception have really improved lately. I guess this is because I've finally become who I'm meant to be. And I'm laughing. But then the minute I see my mom, it's the, the intensity and the irritability and you just don't understand. Uh, and so meanwhile, I, I have begun talking to these two actors about we're going to do this when I get to LA. I'm coming. I'll be there soon. And then my uh, girlfriend uh, has to go away for the weekend. So she says, why don't you go see your parents and visit them? It'll be nice to be around them. Uh, and I do. And that night I sneak out of the house to go uh, make a phone call to the actor uh, or actress. Can't get her on the phone, but I call my girlfriend instead. And the euphoria is overflowing. I'm going to make this movie. Do you even understand? Like this idea that I've had is now going to become this whole thing. And then something breaks in me. And I, I stopped being myself, although I was. Of course, that's what's so strange is, you know, you have to acknowledge that there's, it's not like this other person took control yeah, of me. You're still in there. But... Yeah. And it's it's not even that I'm in there. It's I am still me. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is something that resonates a lot for me. Because it's not that Mr. Hyde takes over and locks Dr. Jekyll away to, you know, rattle the cage and say, if I could just come out, this would be over. It's they're the same being. And when I f when I'm on the phone with my girlfriend driving around screaming and belittling her and being cruel in a way that I'm not normally. Um, you know, it, it's just so hard to think about still. Um, and I get back to my, my parents' house and she says, go find your parents. I go upstairs and I throw the phone on their bed. And then I collapse physically because I hadn't been eating, I hadn't been sleeping and uh, my legs went out and my mom gave me a sleeping pill. And the next day I went to the emergency room at Beth Israel Hospital. Uh, was it uh, your idea or her idea? I woke up that morning realizing that something was wrong. 
Um, but not that I had a diagnosable condition. Okay. I thought, well, clearly I am deprived of sleep and calories and I need to talk to somebody. Maybe, yeah, maybe I have just have the vapors. Right. <laughs> I was in the South recently. Exactly. If I could just get one of those nice fans. <laughs> exactly. And a mint julep, then everything will be better. Well, what I thought was I could go to the hospital and get uh, a con- nice conversation with a nice, relaxed psychiatrist. And they would say, well, you just need to slow down. And, you know, here's a nice little relaxant. And, you know, in a couple of days, you'll be right as rain. You'll go make this movie and change the world. <laughs> yeah. And I walk into the ER, my mom and my sister drive me over and I walk through the doors and up to the desk and I say, I am in acute emotional distress. <laughs> and he, he, uh, Ethan just, uh, kind of mimicked it like a, like almost like a forties musical hand on hip mm-hmm. sassy. Well, I kind of thought like, you know, well, you know, this is, isn't it silly that I'm at the hospital just to tell people that I'm in emotional distress. And they, they take me to the back and I start making hilarious jokes about like, oh, better take this pen away from me. I might stab myself. They did not think that was funny. Uh, trying to keep a sense of humor when you are in an uh, intake yeah, <laughs> psychiatric Yeah, it's, it's like situation. making bomb jokes uh, at the airport. So. Yep. Uh, and I was there for for better part of a day. Um and, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely losing time at this point. Um, so my memories just sort of are hazy. I remember really thrashing and foaming at the mouth at one point and saying, like, how did I ever get here? I was fine and everybody else put me in this place. Um, you know, if I had just been free to do my thing, mm. you know, none of this would have happened. And I, I remember sort of snarling at a nurse and if I have to go to a fucking mental hospital to show you people that I'm fine, and she sort of very calmly and compassionately says, oh, so you would be okay with being sent somewhere? And I was like, if that's what it fucking takes, pardon my language. Yeah. Oh, you can swear here. Um, and that's when I, I uh, ended up in an ambulance. <laughs> they, uh, they said, okay, well then, you're going to Walden Behavioral Counseling or Behavioral Therapy or something. Walden is how I think of it. Um, Which is not on Walden Pond. It's not, but I was on the Thoreau Ward in Walden. (laughs) I don't know who the other ward would be at Walden Hospital, but I was on the Thoreau Ward. Um, And they drove me over in the ambulance. Um, It's the middle of the night. And a week ago, I was just living my life. And this weird sort of serenity hits me where it was like, well, shit just got really real. So... I guess we'll just have to take a deep breath and figure out what the fuck happens now. Uh, and so I, I, the artist part of me turned on and I thought, well, I should really just try and remember all of this because when I get out, I'm going to have a unique experience <laughs> to describe. And I got over there and, and I spent, I think probably four days on an inpatient ward. Um, so when you walk in, you sign the papers that say, I understand that at any time I can say, I'd like to leave, and three days later we have to let you go. And before those words are out of his mouth, I said, I'd like to leave. <laughs> Is this one of my days? And he goes, no, it's midnight. You have to start tomorrow. And, yeah, the the psych ward part. 
Talk about that. Yeah. Um, it was mostly people uh, younger than me. I was 25. There's a lot of people in their early 20s, but a real spectrum of people. Um, you know, young girls with self-harm and, and eating disorder issues. Um, there was one older woman who was, was uh, schizophrenic, but sort of very self-aware of her schizophrenia. Uh, there was a girl who only ever snarled. Uh, there was a guy who, uh, he, he walked by the chessboard one day, snagged the king and the queen, and then we found him praying to them in the hall. Wow. Real spectrum. Yeah. My, uh, roommate was this guy who just slept for the four days I was there. I never saw him get out of bed. Uh, and he had an, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous book mm. by his bed. And he would tell me finally the day that we both left, he <laughs> got up and said, I've just been trying to make the time pass. He looks at the Al-Anon book and then he just throws it away. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, a spectrum. And I uh, was, this was the part where I really needed to figure out how to sort of let go of control because I was so focused on trying to micromanage uh, people's reaction to me. It was, okay, well, if I play this game just right, I can get out of here in two days. I bet I can get out of here tomorrow. If I just show them what a good model patient I am and that I don't need to be here. And I spent the first day just so furiously trying to control the narrative like that. And I was still so sort of wound up and, and the more you try to control the narrative and the less you sort of actually listen to the people around you, the more trouble I was in. Isn't that, isn't that funny? The more we act out of the fear we have, the more likely it is that fear will come true. Yep. Never in a way that we expect it. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. Well, so I got diagnosed. I got put on a um, put on the the regimen of pills, uh, antipsychotic and uh, mood stabilizer. And they diagnosed you as bipolar one with psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. Within about 30 seconds of seeing me, my psychiatrist did. Just by glancing at the uh, opening credits of your screenplay? Exactly. No, uh, I mean, you know, I, I opened my mouth and mm. everything just comes pouring out. And I think that I'm signing my clean bill of health. I think that I'm explaining myself so lucidly. I'm a genius and I'm going to go save the world and, and racism. And so were you still in a manic phase or had you come down at all at that point? Had they medicated you? Uh, the meds... Those first couple of days, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't going to take that fast. I'm sure I was on some kind of sedative. Mm-hmm. Um, it was this weird sort of in-between state where, like, I was able to sort of hold two different thoughts in my head, which was, I need help and I'm here for a reason, but also nothing that I'm doing or saying is actually wrong. And I spent those three days trying so hard to let them give me a computer so that I could explain to these two actors why I had disappeared when we were in the middle of talking. And thank God they didn't give me a computer. <laughs> oh, my God. And, but I was begging them, like, you don't understand. I have to write this email. So much is depending on this. And they kept their cool and said, no, it's a policy. <laughs> um, and I hadn't talked to my girlfriend at this time. I'd, I'd been with this woman for uh, five years by this point. Um and my last memory was that I had tried to break her, you know, tried to destroy her um, in that moment of, of just belittling her. And 
and I, I wanted to call her, but I didn't. There was the one uh, payphone in the ward, and this is this is the feeling out of all of them that is maybe the hardest to think about. Um, is the feeling of I want more than anything to pick up that phone and talk to her, this woman who is my partner. Um, but I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth if I do. So I have to sit on this couch with my mouth shut because I can't. I, I want to say I can't control, but there it is again, like the idea that on some level I was in control. But I'm scared of what that will make me want to do and say. And it took days and finally I, I, I sucked up the courage and I called and she was amazing. <laughs> um, what do you remember from your phone call? Very little. What I do have are the uh, emails that she was writing me every day <laughs> that I was in there. She knew I couldn't read them, but every day she would write me an email just saying, um, this is what I did today. Uh, and I talked to a doctor and I'm going to find out how to best support you. And I know that you're scared right now and I hate that. And I wish I could talk to you and, and all of wow, that. Wow. She sounds amazing. She is. What's her name? <laughs> Caitlin. And, uh, yeah, we have been together 10 years and, and now have a daughter. <laughs> Um, but that's a spoiler alert too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing was, I still, I was still thinking to myself that I was not like these people and that was something I needed to get over. Uh, and I still, I feel like I'm still wrestling with, with some of the feelings I had in there. Cause I remember a nursing student came in to talk to us, uh, or I think to do individual interviews. And I sat in the corner with her across the table and I was so mad at her and I was, I was thinking, you see me as homework. You get to come in and be very intellectually interested in this case. And then you'll go home tonight and you'll have a beer and talk about this case that you saw today. And you don't know that I'm a human. You're dehumanizing me by this. And it's not even until very recently that I was thinking she was not giving me anything to base that on. I think what I was feeling was what I would have felt if I were her up until very recently. And I have to tell you from the surveys I've read of people's psych ward experiences, you're not that far off. Yeah. How so? Um, a lack of empathy, a lack of patience, which is understandable given how repetitive, uh, and stubborn people in the throes of a mental crisis must be. But my feeling is we'll then work less hours so that you, have some patience and, and empathy. Um, the people who do go to psych wards where there is patience and empathy and practical coping skills being taught and group and stuff like that, those people uh, generally look back on it uh, as a positive experience, perhaps not at the time, but overall. Um, yeah. Well, there was a lot of group stuff there. Um, this was one incident, this this interview, and we did art therapy. <laughs> Did you see that movie? It's kind of a funny story. Mm -mm. Uh, it's about a kid who ends up on a psych ward very much like this one. Um, and there is a, a scene in that movie that is just so much like a scene in my own art therapy that it's so eerie to look back at it as, um, they use the, the, the queen song under pressure mm -hmm. as a, as a device, both in the movie and in our real, uh, art therapy to, let us sort of let go of ourselves and think about the pressures in our own lives. And 
I had this very cathartic, powerful experience with a group of sick people coloring with crayons and one at a time joining in on that line. Uh, why can't we give love, give love, give love, give love until we're all just sort of humming it under our breath together. And it was this moment of grace in all of this madness, literally, uh, that I really cherish. And then to see it happen in a movie is so, <laughs> so weird. <laughs> With Zach Galifianakis and uh, whoever else is in there. So then I, I got out, and then I, I was home again, and I picked up right where I left off. Started making phone calls, started you know planning to make this movie. And were you taking the medication that I imagine was prescribed to you? Yes, uh, and I have never gone off my meds. Um, once I wrestled all of this to the ground um that summer i uh i never had the temptation to go off my meds because i was so scared mm -hmm. of what would happen again and i'm getting ahead of myself to get to the idea of any stability uh, i spent that summer in in a really deep depression i was that real classic like i was medicated mm -hmm. you know i i had really lost an ability to connect with myself um I, I barely talked in conversations with family and friends. Um, I started seeing a, a psychiatrist probably two, three times a week. Then been seeing him for seven years. We're down to once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and is it for talk therapy as well, or just meds talk therapy? We talked for 45 okay. minutes, uh, once a week at this point, but it was twice for many years. And I still remember him saying to me, where's your inner life at? a few months later. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you're walking down the street, what are you thinking? And the question made no sense to me. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean thinking? I was like, well, sometimes I sing a song in my head and I had honestly like forgotten what it meant to have an inner life. As I got used to these, these meds that have such a huge effect, I gained a ton of weight. Like I was up to about 300 pounds very quickly. Um, I'm more around 240 or so at this point. I guess the listener can't see me. Um, and then I got into grad school <laughs> right around the same time. that That's I That's always good for people who are on the verge of snapping. I know. It's such a relaxing place. Yep. Uh, I had applied to MFA programs for prose writing and had gotten waitlisted at one and forgotten that I got waitlisted. And so then I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping all the time. I'm staying at my parents' house just sleeping all day. And I get woken up by a phone call and it's this woman who says, Hey, I'm, I'm at the university of North Carolina, Wilmington. And, uh, we were wondering if you'd like to enroll next year. Uh, you know, we found a spot. And I said, I'm going to have to call you back. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I walked in and I said, mom, I got into grad school. And then I just burst into tears. <laughs> what kind of tears? Uh, just so overwhelmed, you know, like, well, I got to go. Like, fuck, <laughs> I just got out of a psych ward and I'm trying to like find mm. myself again. And oh, now I guess in two months I need to move to North Carolina. <laughs> and so did you go try to find a light socket to punch? No. I mean, that's I was, the best coping skill I know, I was, I've heard I was of. right there. Um, that I, light socket's never going to mouth off again. I'm sorry. I, I want to yes and you, but I'm just thinking <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by that moment now. I've I've never thought of those two parallels as these moments that my life dropped out has 
I'm somebody who, who derives so much sort of strength from the people around me and going away from that has always been so terrifying, especially when I could barely talk and I couldn't write. That was the other thing. Mm. Uh, you know, the meds for a good long while took away my ability to string a sentence together. And then a woman says, Hey, do you want to come down and <laughs> write for two straight years? Wow. Uh, three straight years. And you know, it's, it's a good program. I was going to be around talented people and like, I couldn't write, but like, what a blessing at the same time to have some structure come into my life. And so mm -hmm. I moved to North Carolina. Uh, Caitlin didn't come with me. She was, uh, back up in Boston trying to figure out what she was going to do with her life. And for a year I had this real imposter syndrome, um, a term that I'm sure most of your listeners are very familiar with. Uh, and I can tell you pretty much every person that's ever written me an email that's in grad school ha has that same feeling. So yeah, I, I spent this year recycling old material and nobody ever knew. Um, but I couldn't write. I couldn't, <laughs> you know, as much as I might have wanted to string a sentence together. So, and, and were you sharing with your psychiatrist? Um, this, this is this part of my life has not come back. And what would, what would he say or she? Uh, he uh, would say that it takes a while to get used to the meds and, and we'll work down the dose on the antipsychotic. I was on a whopping dose of this antipsychotic for a while and, and we had to start working it down. And, and so I had that vague sense of a, um, there's, there's an end in sight for this. Okay. Uh, and that kept me going. And also I was still so numb. I mean, I remember I would talk to him on the phone for my sessions and he would get so frustrated with me. He'd, he'd call and say, so what are we going to talk about? And I'd say, I don't know. It's like I wasn't I wasn't engaging with that. Um, it's hard when you're depressed. Yeah, and numb. Yep, and it's it's something where like as much as you might want to snap out of it, it's just not possible. I mean, this is such classic, you know, depression rhetoric for anybody who's ever experienced it. It's so clear, but you you still see it so much in the world. People who would want to say, well, you know, there's that line from Say Anything. How hard is it to just decide to be in a good mood and then be in a good mood? really hard yeah somebody uh a listener submitted a survey that said um being stuck in clinical depression uh it feels like you're drowning and everybody is yelling at you learn how to swim it's very good yeah um or why don't you why aren't you already swimming right. i can swim what's wrong yeah. with you uh i watched every episode of the nbc sitcom wings on Netflix that year. That's one of my primary I would have memories. had you committed. I would have had you committed. That's that the show. That's really? The, oh, that's uh, too bad. That's that. It's not a bad show. It's just, <laughs> it, my, my, uh, my comment is that if I was going to pick anything to watch a marathon, that would be about number 300 out of 10,000. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's always been my like sort of warm and fuzzy show. And I, I remember the panic that I felt as I got towards the, the series finale this sort of terror of like, oh God, once Wings is over, I need to re-engage with my life. <laughs> Maybe I can just start over. And then uh, sometime around that spring, I decided to drive across the country. <laughs> That's the next big shift. Um, I was starting to sort of get my, my vim and vigor back. Is mm -hmm. that an appropriate term? Yeah. That sounds right. 
Um, Although Vim and Vigor no longer work together. No? They had a falling out. Oh, that's too yeah. bad. So if I had to choose one, I'm a real Vigor guy. So I got my Vigor back. Um, and I decided I need to do something big. Uh, obviously, writing this fiction isn't happening. So what if I drive across the country and I do an interview project? <laughs> my grandiosity is still there, even when mm-hmm. I'm more emotionally stable. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to drive across the country with a tape recorder. And I'm going to interview people about... We'll figure it out. And then I'll write a great book about it. I love the idea of driving across country and interviewing people. The we'll figure it out. (laughs) Not so crazy. Right. So uh, I dragooned, I think would be a good word. Uh, One of my best friends, a former manic optimist, into driving across the country with me. Um, We got in a car with a digital tape recorder. And we decided we'll interview people uh, about what their sort of Oh, this was the premise. We will ask people what their advice would be for young people starting out like us. And then as we started driving, we were thinking, well, we'll also ask people what their hopes and dreams are, and we'll just have these beautiful conversations. We very quickly realized we were uh, had a lot of social anxiety <laughs> and had trouble finding people to interview. And, you know, people love opening up at a gas station. Yep. There's just something so safe. And the, and the art of getting people to talk is difficult. This is, I'm sure, something you're aware of. There is an art to with, it. With some people, yes. With other people, no. But yes. But to just walk up to somebody with a tape recorder and say, I'm writing a book. Tell me things. Yeah. It's difficult. So we ended up leaning a lot more on, on our friends. As we drove, we had friends all over the country. Uh, and this was a full circuit. We went uh, up through the Great Plains, up to Seattle, down the whole west coast uh and back east through sort of texas back up the carolinas uh and something happened as i was driving which was i started to re-engage with the idea of making this movie uh, because i realized that i just couldn't live without doing it you know <laughs> that was that was what i realized is is my depression had for that last year had masked this sorrow that was still there when the depression lifted the sorrow was still there the sorrow of i had this and i remember even during the mania saying to my mom at one point it's so fucked up but this was the best week of my life wow because this was a week that i felt like my dream was actually on the verge of happening and so we drove across the country and and we would interview our friends and say what are your hopes and dreams and one after another, they would all be so fulfilled. They would say, well, I'm on the path. My hopes and dreams are to keep doing what I'm doing and get better at it. And I was so mad at them, (laughs) so jealous. And then we were in Oregon uh, one day at a bed and breakfast. Um, My friend and I stayed at this bed and breakfast in Oregon. I think it's Oregon, if not Northern California, uh, where every room is, is modeled after a different author. We wanted the Charles Dickens room or the Ernest Hemingway room. We got the Dr. Seuss room. It was all that was available. Probably the funnest room. It was a room for children. Yeah. <laughs> the shower head was about four feet off the ground. <laughs> but we just really needed to stay there. And the next morning we had breakfast. It was a bed and breakfast. So it was communal. Uh, and we were sitting there with this family, uh, you know, two parents and a grown son. And then an old woman who was 
doing her own little trip. I think it was like every year she took herself to the the author motel or, or author yeah. inn. And we said, you know what? Like, fine. We, we put our recorder on the table and said, if we're not going to have a real conversation now, we never are <laughs> with these people that we're already talking to. We said, is it okay if we record this? We're asking people questions. Mm-hmm. And we talked to the, you know, parents and the son. They, they really gave us like nothing at all. And I was just despairing. <laughs> and then the old woman says, well, the advice that anybody would have given me at the time, I wouldn't have listened to anyway. And then she told us this story of being young and uh, in what sounds for all accounts like an abusive marriage. She sort of talked around it. And she said, I was having a very difficult time. And uh, the priest of my town took me to look at different social services options. Um, and he told me, don't forget that the places you feel most broken now will one day be your greatest strength. And I get chills thinking about that now because that was a moment that just changed everything for me. So true. Yeah. That's such a beautiful idea that like I in that moment felt like like a whole like human being made of broken parts. And to think that, oh, well, those can turn into scar tissue and then you can be even stronger, you know, was so moving and so exciting. (laughs) Uh, And then I I had another conversation. Uh, This is the other one that really impacted me was... uh, Coming back around to my friend Ryan Polly, who was the person person who first said, why don't you write a screenplay? That's what you want to do. We visited him in L.A. where he was making his music. And we had this conversation that I, I still have the transcript of what he told me because I look at it from time to time. He, he said to me, like, you know, you're doing this prose writing, but I know you're not happy. And he was doing his music then. And he said, I have this balance where I'm like, is this what I should be doing? And it's probably not, but I need to be doing this. And I've made this firm decision, and that's important, is to whatever you're doing, feel like you're doing it for the right reasons and really go after it, because you can't give 100% if you don't feel completely justified in what you're doing, or everything will just float by. And that really struck me, and now we're in L.A., and I'm driving back across the bottom side of the country thinking, fuck, I'm going to go make this movie, aren't I? (laughs) And I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if I can, but I know I need to try. And I think I would be disingenuous to not at this point mention a part of this story that I very rarely do because it's less inspiring. Um, Because it's not fun (laughs) and it makes me feel bad. Those, those I think are the best moments on the, on the podcast. But I would be disingenuous to the person that this concerns if I didn't mention it. Um, which is around this time I got back in touch with the actress that I had been talking to a year earlier. And I said, I'm, I'm driving across the country. I'm coming to Texas where she lived. And like, please, can I, can we get a cup of coffee? Like I need some kind of catharsis. And looking back at it now, she was, she was hesitant about it as she should have been. And, but she, she agreed. She said, if you're, you know, let me know when you are in in the Houston area or wherever she lives. Um, and, and maybe we can set something up. And then by the time I hit LA, I was starting to think about making this movie again. And what was initially supposed to be this sort of moment of catharsis and closing a door for me 
started to look a lot more like maybe reopening a, a very specific door. <laughs> and so by the time we got to Texas and I did meet up with her, uh, I was going to give some specific details, but I won't for the sake of her, uh, anonymity and privacy. Um, we got together and I started it. I started it all over again. I wasn't manic, but I was maybe a little hypomanic, mm-hmm. uh, which is a term many of your listeners I'm sure mm-hmm. are familiar with, but it's sort of a low grade mania mm-hmm. that is <laughs> less intense. And, uh, for some people, uh, hypersexuality, uh, among other things can, can come with it. Uh, not in my experience, I guess, uh, not in this case, at least certainly. Okay. Uh, no, it was, uh, I assumed that that's what you were alluding to. Oh God, no. Oh my God. Yeah, okay. That's so much more dramatic. No, it was just that I, I dragged this person who I just had no business making my problems, her problems. I got you. Uh, and so what I just feel sorrow about now is that I, I tried to re-engage her in this this dream for me. I see. That you redragged her into the I hurricane. I redragged her into it. And like, yeah. I had made some big promises to her a year earlier. I see. And it wasn't fair then. And God damn it, I should have just left her alone. <laughs> um, and I just feel, I feel guilt about that. And to, to fr- frame this as I usually do, to frame this as a triumphant story of me sort of finding my spirit again and to, you know, Ignore the fact that there were some bumps in that would be wrong. I got to say, those are some pretty minor bumps in in terms of the wreckage I've heard that people uh, that I've experienced in my life. And um, yeah, it it, it would be like a cancer patient blaming themselves for not being able to run up a flight of stairs and save somebody. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. You're up against something much bigger than your... Yeah. yourself at that point not that there isn't responsibility involved in some capacity but yeah. um you know there's a there's a line in there somewhere i'm not sure where it exists but well, to say i should have known better is of course wrong because i wasn't fully in control but that is of mm-hmm. course a, a fine line still it's it's a sorrow mm-hmm. um Anyway, I guess I should pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Sorrow, by the way, was my name when I was a male dancer. <laughs> I'm sure people loved that. It, I did not do well. There's a very specific fetish. There, I did though, not you know, do well. The Sorrowheads. I had a little uh, Kleenex dispenser in my G-string. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that would yeah. come in handy for all they'd kinds of... They'd put a of... dollar in, they'd take a Kleenex out. <laughs> uh, go ahead. So I went into pre-production on this movie. Uh, and we started putting it together. I guess at this point I could talk a little bit about West of Her, this movie mm-hmm. that I did write and direct. And uh, for uh, the, the listeners, it's West of Her. Correct. Uh, which is a line from a song by Josh Ritter, who's my favorite musician. West of Her, there's a place I know, never have been, but I'd like to go. And it's a road movie. Uh, we shot it over uh, 10 states, 3,000 miles. Um, and... So pre-production for that was wild because we had to plan a cross-country road trip. We, I should say, is I have a producing partner who Mm -hmm. is uh, a guy that I I did my four-week film school with years and years earlier. We got back Mm -hmm. in touch. We said, we're going to make this movie on the same scale. Um, I had been talking to him all through my manic episode Mm -hmm. a year earlier. And then I finally came back to him and said, I think we could make a movie. 
not this one. This one's too big. It's too intense. And he said, no, we can make this movie. And he talked me into it and uh, started working with another producing partner. By the way, we have about 10 minutes. Okay. Left. I'll blast, I'll blast through. Okay. Uh, so basically, I, I had another manic episode uh, the, the following spring. I, um, it got away from me again. And I didn't end up hospitalized. Uh, were you still on your meds? I was on my meds. Okay. But again, the excitement got away from me. And the joy got away from me. And I stopped being vigilant were there uh, triggers that you were ignoring, like not getting enough sleep, being too stressed out, spreading yourself too thin? Yeah, not I've, getting I've enough heard sleep. that those are things that can trigger mania in yeah. people. Not getting enough sleep. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, putting myself through too many deadlines, um, putting too much on my own plate and, and having too much fun. That's where it really is, too, is the, the uh, fact that I... You sometimes have to make yourself slow down. You know, it's fun to run around and make art and, and get excited, but you have to know when it's also time to go to bed and know that this will still be there tomorrow. I see. And I, I see a theme running through your life, which is a fear of missing out. Yes, FOMO. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, which I very much relate to. Yeah. And it's, it's also like I, I, mortality is a big fear of mine, uh, and oblivion and feeling like that I, I haven't lived my life to the fullest. I think especially after those three years where I, I didn't waste my time because it got me to where I am now, but this feeling that like, I'm never going to get to create everything that I want to, um, you know, gives me this, this fear of not producing fast enough. And that's something I still run into now as, as a father and, and, um, I need to know when to compartmentalize. Now is the time to work. Now is the time to, to have a family, be with my family. So my second manic episode was, was not as dramatic, uh, but it was a wake-up call, certainly. Um, and boy, uh, I'm trying to think of how to now streamline it as fast as possible. But that's really where the, uh, the, the manic... Uh, episodes part of the creation of this movie kind of kind of ends um we went off and made it and i still felt moments of of loss of control emotionally while we were doing it it was scary but something that my psychiatrist said to me was um you can lose it without losing it that's something that's been really important to me and what uh, does he mean by that he means that you don't need to be uh in such control of your emotions that you don't allow yourself to just feel a big feeling sometimes mm -hmm. that you don't need to be so scared of losing control that you prevent yourself from ever actually experiencing your feelings. And oh, so that, that's what a, what a great idea and great way of uh, succinctly expressing it. I think of it a lot. Uh, I think to myself, if I'm getting scared, because I've been, I've been healthy and stable since 2012. That was my... 2013. Spring mm -hmm. of 2013 was the second episode. And if I do find myself getting scared now, uh, I think to myself, well, I can lose it without losing it. And that's sort of a mantra. Mm -hmm. uh, and I still live with it every day. Um, I'm very, very lucky uh, as, as in terms of how uh, um, stable I've been able to be. 
But I had a moment a few weeks ago where um, we went out of town to visit uh, my mom's family for Christmas. And for the first time in years, I, I didn't um, make a packing list for myself. And I left my pills at home. And we drove to the middle of Maine, an hour from a pharmacy, uh, and a blizzard was coming down. <laughs> this is this sounds like the beginning of a Stephen King novel. A very specific one, yeah. <laughs> um, and I had this feeling of loss of control in such a dramatic way. If, if I can't get a little bottle of pills sometime in the next day or two, I'm going to become a werewolf. And it was the first time in years that I was really so in touch with that fear for the first time. Did you believe that it was, you mean a, a metaphorical werewolf? <laughs> yes, okay. I Because with psychosis, you never, right. you never know. But there is this feeling, I think, uh, to uh, being bipolar and, and to think that at any time, this transformation could come over me and I could become yeah. this monster who yeah. is, you know, running roughshod over my life. I think monster's a little strong, a little hard on yourself, of but course. yes, I understand. But that was what I meant by the werewolf analogy, yes. was that yes. this this more sort of wild part of me yes. could come out and, and I wouldn't be able to be in control of, of what I would do in that time. And so that's that's sort of tough to to be moving that forward. That must be terrifying. Yeah, it was it was scary and it was very recent and I'm still kind of wrestling with that. And I don't really know where that leaves you with a moral, except that you know what we don't we don't need a moral. Yeah. You know, you you gave us really descriptive vignettes on your arc of yeah. your I hate the word journey, but your journey from discovering you have something, wishing you didn't have it, yeah. seeing what it looks like when you deny it, yeah. surrendering to the management. And discovering that the management isn't always perfect, but your life is better and you can still access those parts of yourself that are beautiful and authentic. Yeah. And to just sort of accept that that this can be a part of, of who I am and not yeah. define me, you know, to synthesize your illness with, you know, who you are and to, to be able to keep moving forward uh, with stuff. You know, one of the one of the things that I try to remind myself when I get into a negative mood of I don't have enough or this isn't working or those people piss me off is um, that if it weren't for the bad things, we wouldn't feel the good things as deeply. Yeah, and and I, I can tell you, having gone through clinical untreated clinical depression for years, I appreciate a good mood. I think deeper than somebody who never has experienced clinical depression. And so my thought as you were sharing that was, how can this also not benefit you as an artist because you have a more three-dimensional view of um, the emotional palette that human beings have? Yeah, and it comes out in everything I write. I mean, I feel like I have sort of accessed this real <laughs> free fall of, of emotion that, uh, you know, has, has really enabled me to uh, write with wild abandon when I need to. The first play I ever wrote, I'm also a playwright, and the first thing I, I wrote and had produced uh, was Theater of the Absurd, which I think really came directly from my sense of, uh, of how the world looks when you are uh, <laughs> acknowledging your, your lack of control. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, the lies w- that we will tell ourselves to believe that, that we have more control yeah. uh, in the universe than we actually do. Um, yeah, I had this thought, you know, going back to the point where we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, saying, well, if I hadn't experienced this, I wouldn't, this wouldn't feel as good. And I was driving over here tonight and there was, you know, some political characters on the radio spouting their, you know, their horse shit. And I found myself getting really, uh, I wouldn't say depressed, but kind of angry and just jaded. And I thought to myself, well, if those people didn't exist, I wouldn't appreciate honest people as much. And it helped me. So the movie is called West of Her, and uh, it's coming out uh, shortly. It'll probably be out by the time this goes up. It absolutely will, yeah. It's because it's uh, out February 6th. We're recording this a week before, not to date things too badly. Uh, But yeah, it'll be on uh, all your favorite streaming services, iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, etc., and uh, Cable On Demand. Um, There's talk of a DVD release as well, so keep an eye out for that, and it should be available internationally it's coming out through gravitas ventures um and yeah i mean i (laughs) i am unbelievably proud of this thing for all of the sort of storms that it it took to get it made you know it's pretty great that it came out more beautifully than i uh even imagined it would so well congratulations thank you and uh thanks for thanks for stopping by and if you wouldn't mind on the way out would you punch my uh, light yeah it's if you want to just always remember that sometimes (laughs) A guy loses control. That's, I could easily do that for you. Thank you. Many thanks to Ethan. And uh, I should have mentioned that that was recorded two, almost three years ago. And I suppose I could have mentioned that at the beginning of the episode, but I didn't, uh, I didn't want to ruin it for you. So obviously his movie uh, has been out. It's been out since uh, 2018. And uh, go check it out. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the uh, Ask Paul Anything survey. And uh, JB asked, is there a specific conversation on mental health that you consistently find hardest to discuss for whatever reason? Uh, I would say that there are two things that that I find myself not having passion uh, to talk about or that make me uncomfortable. And one is... And, and this appears sometimes in the surveys, but a lot of times I don't read it. Um, and it's where people talk about in the past having harmed animals. It it just um, it's just a hard thing for for me to to touch on. And I get the feeling that people out there listening don't really want to hear it. I could be wrong. But uh, so I tend to avoid that. I guess that's less of a a discussion and more of something that a topic that comes up on the show. And the other thing that I I find myself not having a passion to talk about is depression because I battle so much in my mind every day with clinical depression that I don't really want to think about it anymore. And so... I I tend to, I wouldn't say actively avoid it, but I don't seek it out in a conversation with somebody. And maybe I'm a terrible host for doing that. No, that's a little unfair. I'm a terrible person 
deep down, right to the core of my heart, right to my butthole, actually through my butthole to someone else's butthole. That's how. That's how deep. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Janae, and she writes, I'm afraid I'm failing at raising my children, and they will suffer as teenagers and adults because I didn't do everything I could have done. I know they will suffer, as all people do in life, but I know I will think it is all my fault for not being good enough. Thank you for sharing that, and I I wanted to say that you sound like a good parent because you sound like you are cognizant of the fact that you have an effect on your kids and you are awake so many parents and just people in general walk through life having no clue as to the effect that they have on other people um, and parents in particular so um, you sound like a good mom to me this is from the back in time survey filled out by louisa and she writes i want to go back to that little girl just before something broke inside her and tell her that she's not crazy I still have no idea when and how exactly things went so wrong, but I know there was a time I was a normal child, maybe three or four years old, before something cracked. I'm starting to think about having kids of my own, and I tear up picturing me at three or four, a blonde, blue-eyed, grinning tomboy, always climbing stuff, always chattering away. I want to tell that little girl that no matter what happens, no matter what people say or how they treat her, she is not worthless. She is not crazy or oversensitive, and that she is not a burden, and that she doesn't have to be grateful for any scrap of attention, no matter how ill-willed, that her feelings are valid, and that other people, above all, her parents, have a responsibility to help her with those difficult feelings she'll start to hide away very soon. I want to tell her that she doesn't deserve the silent treatment her dad will punish her with, and that she has every right to tell her grandparents she doesn't want to be touched by them in that way. I want to tell her that I really need her to try to love herself because no one will ever be able to give her that love back once it's lost. Wow, that is uh, that is beautiful and heavy. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself. I'm even trying to impress with this username. She identifies as bi-curious. She is uh, 18. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. At a young age in daycare, I was caught with another child, uh, a boy, inappropriately touching each other while this was just from curiosity and not pleasure. I felt deep shame about this my whole life. I also rubbed against things inappropriately as a child, which led to traumatizing therapy from a young age. While I have no memories of anything happening other than these circumstances, I often worry if something caused these other events that I have blocked out or cannot remember. Uh, She's been physically and emotionally abused. While in the hospital waiting room with both my parents after experiencing a complete emotional breakdown, I was made to feel even worse. It was getting to be late at night, and the waiting list to get in was long. During my hysteric sobs in the waiting room, I was told to shut up by both of my parents, who were more annoying than anything. 
They finally dragged me out into the hallway and told me that if I didn't stop having a breakdown, they were going to make my life even worse and not let me see anyone I cared about or do anything I enjoyed. As someone already suffering from suicidal thoughts and depression, it's easy to see how absolutely crushing this felt. I truly believed my life was over that night. I waited to get in to see the psychiatrist on call that night, an old man who recommended me science fiction novels. I don't even like science fiction. And he called it, uh, and then called it a night. My parents still believe they helped me that night. Wow. Wow. Oh, the lengths people will go to to avoid having difficult conversations and feeling things they don't want to feel. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents have always been able to provide financially and materially, but never emotionally. They always use this to show me, quote, how much they've done for me. Well, it was their choice to bring you into the world, so they are not doing you a favor by putting food on the table or checking your grades. Darkest thought, killing every girl or woman who has ever hurt me or been very mean. Darkest secrets. As a young child, I was very aggressive and frequently fantasized about physically harming others around me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with many women, not in a relationship, only for sex. This makes me feel deeply ashamed. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? I've only shared all of these things within the last year with my boyfriend. He is loving and supporting, which I never thought I would have a space safe space to share this. After sharing these experiences, I feel relieved and I hope it makes someone else out there feel less alone in their experience. I would suggest uh, finding someone that you trust to share these things with. I am too ashamed to share these with even my therapist, so I talk to close friends. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I agree. Finding somebody safe to open up to um, but you know, I would I would suggest giving it sh- a, a, a shot, sharing this stuff with your therapist, because a lot of times therapists can have insights or tools that uh, a friend might not have. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Moopy. And they write, I love taking midday naps on the couch with my dog resting her head on or between my legs and waking up to see her big, beautiful, sleepy brown eyes looking at me with adoration. I love the feeling and smell of a clean house and lighting a candle or incense at the end to complete the process. I love going to concerts to see my favorite bands and screaming their lyrics at the top of my lungs with a sweaty group of strangers. Fuck, I miss concerts. I love a good meditation session where it feels like I'm literally out of my own mind and floating in the air, as well as the peace and calmness it brings afterwards. Ah, thank you for those. And I'm jealous because I haven't experienced that in meditation in a long time. Meditation has, for me, kind of devolved into just worrying with my eyes closed. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself OK. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I've never been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. 
It's just a snapshot of a memory. I was in the hall of my childhood home, and my mother had just walked out of the bathroom from taking a shower. She was wrapped in a towel, but I could still see the outline of her breasts, and it made me feel the same way I had felt when my neighbor showed me her dad's porn magazine. I asked my mom if I could kiss her breasts, and she let me. Wow. Wow. Oh. I, he says that he's never been physically abused, but he has been emotionally abused. One time my mom was mad at me about something, and she took all my clothes and toys from my bedroom and threw them all out in the hallway and told me I was going to have to go live with my grandparents. One time she told me masturbating was bad, and I lied and told her I didn't do it, which she knew was a lie, and then I thought it was gross and never wanted to do it, uh, all through embarrassed tears. I did manage to get my parents to rent me a video game all, after all that, though. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My main abuser is so fucked in the head that it's hard for me to blame her, honestly. There were a lot of good times, and there continue to be, but things are definitely complicated. Darkest thoughts. I have a lot of incestuous fantasies, not really with my actual family. I generally just make up a narrative about how the people fucking in the porn I watch are related. I also watch a lot of interracial porn, specifically black men with white women, and I feel a lot of shame about that for some reason. Uh, Darkest secrets. I've said sexually inappropriate things to women I didn't know. I've made sexually explicit prank phone calls. I intentionally got caught masturbating by a friend's mother. I had a long struggle with being a thief. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My biggest fantasies anymore all have to do with watching porn with people while I masturbate or watching someone else have sex in person while I masturbate. I've essentially taken myself out of the equation. What, if anything, would you like to ask someone uh, to say to someone you haven't been able to, I'd like to ask my dad if he thinks about anything at all, ever. What, if anything, do you wish for that I could be satisfied? Have you shared these things with others, some of these things? How do you feel after writing these things down? No different. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Stay on track. Don't give yourself wiggle room because you will take advantage of it and you'll derail. Do the things you know you need, you know need to be done. Do the things that make you feel good about yourself, not the things that make you feel good for a minute. And I would add, and if you can't, ask for help. Ask for help. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, the, the feel I got from reading your survey is that you're experiencing numbness and detachment. And that is definitely one of the hallmarks of uh, having, having been through trauma. And um, I think processing that trauma with a professional or a support group would, would be really, really beneficial. Right, sending you some love, man. And speaking of love, this is from the love survey. Uh, filled out by definitely dehydrated and they write I love when I come home to find that my dad did the dishes I love when all my meds are working and I'm in harmony I love those days when everything feels easy and natural and I want to take care of myself and to reach out to friends or put myself out there in a new way that's a beautiful one that is an amazing feeling 
when it's not an effort to do, to do this shit. Every morning I wake up, there's just a feeling of dread about the things that I know I need to do that day to try to feel healthy and centered and grateful and all of that other bullshit. No, it's not bullshit, but... And then finally, this is from the Love Survey. Um, this is filed... This is filled out by a guy who calls himself the bereaved imposter. And he writes, I'm currently in prison serving a seven-year sentence. And if you'd allow me, I'd like to change this love survey to a miss survey. After all, you only miss the things you love. I've never heard of someone missing that migraine or hemorrhoid. I disagree. I miss my hemorrhoids. I think about them every day. Sometimes I'll doodle and I'll just draw what I imagine the hemorrhoids look like. I can never really get a good look at them. I'm not very flexible and I'm a terrible drawer. Uh, I miss all my loved ones so goddamn much. I miss laughing. I mean real laughter where you're laughing so hard you can't breathe. Your stomach hurts and you have tears streaming down your face. I miss standing in the rain, feeling it on my skin. I miss hugs, because contrary to popular belief, men don't go around hugging each other in prison. I miss eating out. I assume you're talking about pussy. I miss taking a shit without an audience. I miss watching what I want on TV for hours on end. I miss sitting with my family and friends, talking and laughing. I miss dogs. A couple of years ago, I was at a facility where I was a trustee, and I was outside working on a Saturday, and one of the COs brought their dog, and I got to pet her for a moment. But all I really wanted to do was plop my ass down on the ground and scratch her behind her ears and give her belly rubs. I miss crying, and here you have to be tough 24-7, so you can't cry. I've lost loved ones and have not cried for them. I had to bottle up those emotions and those tears. But once I get out and I make visits to the graves of the ones I've lost, I'm going to uncork that bottle and pour out those tears and finally really mourn them. I miss standing outside at night, staring up into the sky, listening to silence and the crickets chirping. I miss not being as jaded as I used to be before I started this whole thing. I miss intelligent people. Most people in prison are not the brightest. However, I've met some folks that really are salt of the earth but look dangerous with their entire body tattooed. I've learned not to judge books by their covers. And I've also learned that sometimes a person is exactly who they seem to be. Basically, I judged someone before I knew them, and I was right in my assumption. I miss going to see a movie, but with COVID, I bet everyone else does too. I just really miss living because the prison life is no way to live. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. That, uh, that was quite a picture you, you painted and you sound like a, a good soul. I don't know what got you in trouble or why you're there, but um, you sound like you still got some light in your in your soul that prison hasn't completely snuffed it out and um if you're if you're listening i don't know if you are i don't know if you can get podcasts in prison but um i'm sending you some love and to anybody out there struggling just 
want to remind you, as I do every week, that uh, you are not alone. It may feel like it, but you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.